You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Ice hockey. Although many think of it as a regional sport with indoor ice rinks these days, hockey can be played pretty much anywhere. Having lived most of my life in the Midwest, hockey has been a fixture in those places, whether it's Wisconsin, now Missouri, Illinois, although I've actually never played the sport myself. I'm actually horrible on ice skates. I never actually took any significant lessons, so don't try and get me out on the ice unless you want to see a good laugh. But even though I personally suck on ice skates, I have a deep appreciation for the sport and the skill of the sport. My office this time of year is filled with hockey injuries of all ages. We have a very big, robust hockey community here in St. Louis. But what do we have for evidence-based hockey research as of late? Well, we'll tackle three articles today on another research review episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host. And my guest today is Dr. Keith Loud. Dr. Loud is chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and physician-in-chief of Dartmouth's Health Children's. He is a graduate of the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University, then completed his pediatric residency at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, followed by fellowship training at Boston Children's Hospital in 2004, and earning a Master of Medical Sciences in Clinical Investigation at Harvard Medical School. Most recently, Keith earned an International Master's in Health Leadership at McGill in 2021. He is certified in adolescent medicine, sports medicine, and general pediatrics. Dr. Loud is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and of Orthopedic Surgery at Geisel, and a former member of the American Board of Pediatrics Subboard of Adolescent Medicine, the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness Executive Committee, and American Hospital Association Maternal and Child Health Governing Council. He currently serves as chair of the board of directors for the New Hampshire Children's Health Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Good to be with you, Mark. I think the last time I saw you was at a St. Louis Blues hockey game, in fact. It is true. It is true. So that was, uh, yeah, that was a fun time. It's been actually a while since I think we've either gotten together or talked. I'm glad to have you on the podcast today, and it's good to see you because we can see each other when we're doing this recording here. But we're going to tackle some hockey articles today on this research review. So I'll, I'll start. We'll go through an article that was published in January 2021 issue of the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine by Dr. Katherine Schneider and their colleagues entitled Concussion Burden, Recovery, and Risk Factors in Elite Youth Ice Hockey Players. So this is a prospective cohort study of both male and female hockey athletes that was collected during the 2011-2012 ice hockey season. It was published in 2021, so it seems like this study was a long time in the works. You had made a comment when we were looking through some of the notes for this that actually it was even accepted in August 2018. So it's kind of interesting that it took three years to actually get this published in actual print. I'm not sure. I didn't see anything that was whether this was accepted online or not prior to that. But yeah, it was. it seems like a really long time to get this out there. Especially Especially when light of what we talk about with some of the methods, because some of these things are actually fairly old things that we don't really use anymore, just from the rapid change in the concussion world. But the primary objective was of this study was to evaluate the incidence of concussion and concussions with longer term recovery in elite youth ice hockey players that were aged 13 to 17. The secondary objectives for the study was to evaluate risk factors for concussion and longer term recovery. 
And this was defined as a time loss greater than 10 days. I think most of us in the concussion world would think that that would be a little bit short as far as kind of longer recovery. I mean, 10 days to me, that's like, wow, you're good in 10 days. We're awesome. But I think, you know, for most of us, I think we'd kind of consider that longer term recovery now is defined as 28 days, I think, in more current research. And it was also determined whether there was a difference in time to medical clearance between the male and female hockey players in this study. So in this study, the male leagues actually allowed body checking, but the female leagues do not, although body contact is allowed in the female leagues. They did baseline testing, including various questionnaires, a SCAT-2, hence the, <laughs> the the part here I was talking and referring to earlier about this being a little bit older since we're up to the SCAT-5. They did impact testing and then behavioral assessment for children or the BASC-2. And then a team therapist collected weekly exposure information as to the games that were done, the practices that were participated in, and any dry land training that was undertaken. Concussed athletes were followed and provided the typical concussion care guidance and then followed through their return to play. And then time loss was calculated from the time of injury to clearance back to sports. Interestingly, the way they did some things in here were a little bit questionable to me. The the athletes who didn't return for follow-up visits and hadn't initiated a return-to-play process, they had this this arbitrary seven days added to the time loss reflected of the earliest possible return-to-play. So I thought found it interesting that those that they lost to follow-up, they still included and they just put this arbitrary return-to-play days in here. So we have to kind of keep that in perspective when we're looking at the results here. And then any concussions that happened and were not cleared before the season had ended had their final date of recovery listed as the last day of the season. So... Again, I, I see some problems there as well, just because we don't know how long those athletes truly took to recover. They just stopped and used that date there. There could be some variation there potentially in some of those participants that uh, had their concussions that happened towards the end of the season and weren't recovered. So that may skew the results just a little bit here. Hard, hard to say since we don't have that data as far as how many were in that group. They had 44 teams that participated, a total of 778 athletes out of 854 that were eligible out of all the teams on these that were looked at. As we would expect, a a high percentage were males. So 84% of these were males in the study. 69% were the midget level. 39% of participants reported a previous history of concussion. During the season, there were 143 concussions. Six players had two concussions during the season. The incidence rate was found to be 17.6 concussions per 100 players. So that Seems like a pretty good percentage of athletes who sustained concussion throughout the season. And they used uh, player hours rather than a lot of times we consider things in sports literature, athletic exposure. So rather than uh, just looking at how many practices or games or dryland training episodes they participated in, they did it based on the number of hours of play. So it was 1.31 concussions per 1,000 player hours. And interestingly, there was no difference in this group found between boys and girls in the study, which is oftentimes what we typically see is that uh, similar sports that girls oftentimes have a higher rate of concussion. So that was a little bit different for this particular study. Individuals who had concussions in the prior year had a, a one and a half times greater rate of concussion with a time loss greater than 10 days. So they're what they defined as their prolonged recovery. Individuals who also had a greater baseline symptom burden, so that was before the season, had greater rates of concussion, and they also had more than 10 days of time loss. They had, it was it was not a big incidence rate here as 1.05 for those that had a greater rate of concussion and more than time loss was 1.07. So it was not super high increases there, but a little bit increase there. 
And then 74% of all concussions had a time loss greater than 10 days. You know, again, (laughs) what we were talking about earlier, as far as typically we define that prolonged concussion is greater than 28 days these days. You know, it's not unusual to see 74% of these athletes taking longer than 10 days. So so not not out of the realm of what we're we're typically seeing in our clinical practices. 20% were greater than 30 days. And that I think does coincide with a lot of the literature we see these days that three to four weeks, 80% of athletes are oftentimes quoted as being back to normal. So that's where we see that correlates pretty well with what we see in other research studies with other sports. Two of the athletes had a recovery time greater than 90 days. And then the medium time loss was 17 days. But interestingly, those that had a second concussion this season was only 10 days. So I found that was a little interesting that it was a, a week shorter for those that had a second concussion. Again, there was a small group. There was only, I think, six, if I remember correctly. Of note, again, there was no difference in time loss in girls or boys, despite there being no checking. And there was no difference in their incidence. So the authors postulated the several things that we oftentimes see with girls is that that there may be a higher likelihood of girls reporting their symptoms, possible lower hits being more likely to produce concussion in girls is kind of some postulated reasons why even though it's a non-checking league, why we wind up seeing similar issues with concussions between the two genders here. Some limitations that were found that concussions may have not been reported, which is obviously always an issue potentially with concussion research, is that we do that. There's also some concerns, obviously, just in general, how we define concussion and how it was diagnosed and was it truly concussion or not. I think the data collection for time loss to me was also a limitation, like I mentioned before, but it wasn't really discussed in their research study in their limitations. I'd really be curious today if this study was conducted, if we if it would yield similar results. I would suspect probably so, but maybe a little bit different as far as how they defined the prolonged time loss. You know, again, I think the greater than 10 days is not unusual, really expected. That's my typical expectation for most of the athletes that I see in the office. But your thoughts on this study, Keith? I mean, I agree. I don't think there's too much earth shattering here that's not inconsistent. And even as you identify, even in their data set, you know, th- two thirds, three quarters or more, it took more than 10 days to recover, which is consistent. I, and I think the nomenclature might have been interesting. And we, as you say, this was conducted more than 10 years ago, or at least designed perhaps more than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the term would have been a significant concussion. I know we've we struggled throughout the time of managing sport concussion and trying to get people away from grading concussions or saying some are more important and more serious. But at the same time, you've got to pick some cutoff, I guess, to indicate what are your more, again, more significant concussions rather than more severe. Because I, I agree, as you, as you cited, and as the even the players themselves bore out, it took, you know, 20% of them took longer than 28 days. And those yeah. are prolonged ones that, that we see. You know, the, the long time between conducting the study and even getting it accepted, one wonders if they had a lot of review processes trying to deal with the missing data. You know, that was really, how do you how do you pick for those loss to follow up? And, and picking sort of that arbitrary end of season or 10 days, I think, would potentially decrease the effect size because some of those kids, as you say, could have been very prolonged. And at some point, statistically, you just have to pick a point and and deal with. But I, I can imagine that in the review process, there was a lot of back and forth about exactly the, the data analysis you identified. And what about that missing data? I thought I heard you say, but I'm not clear remembering from the study, did they include the girls' leagues or were they including girls who could continue to participate in boys' checking leagues? Because that, to me, would have not been surprising then that they had a similar concussion rate. I, I, and in one of the other studies, they excluded girls' leagues, but not girls who might have participated in boys' leagues. 
Yeah, and my understanding with this one is, at least the way I read it, is that the girls that were participants were all in non-checking leagues, okay. and that's that was in the other studies we'll talk about that that was actually an exclusion criteria for the girls' leagues because the girls' leagues, in by definition, in Canada are non-checking leagues. Uh, so, so if there were any girls here that were in checking leagues, I don't believe that they were accounted for or that they were included, or they were just leagues that didn't have any girl participants potentially. But I. I I don't remember seeing anything specifically in the study when I was looking through this that specifically identified that girls who were in checking leagues were included. So again, that may have bled in from my read of the other studies, but that, that could have been yet another postulation by the authors. You know, we've never, I don't, I'm not aware of studies in American football where they've assessed concussion rates for girls in American football because if it is actually truly the same sport, boy soccer mm-hmm. and girl soccer presumed to be quite the same, mm-hmm. might still be different animals. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if you've seen this trend, but I, you know, I've had a, a quite a few more female participants in high school football these days that I'm seeing in my office. I mean, hurt, obviously. Uh, and it's not just the token kicker that we used to hear about. It's now I, I had a girl on one of the teams that's local here who was one of the running backs for the team actually locally here. It's, I think we're seeing a little bit more participation from some girls in football and more acceptance of that. And, you know, here wrestling has also taken off for girls as well. Now they have their own specific girls wrestling league just because we do actually have enough participants now rather than having the girls just wrestle against the boys, which I think is a big positive to have those those separate sports and, and not have to go boys against girls. So. Yeah, I've uh, in Northern New England. I've not experienced any other than kickers, those who identify as girls, participating in in football and wrestling. We do have some girls participating in wrestling now as well. So mm-hmm. interesting trends, and maybe the the numbers will accrue to the point where we can actually do comparison within the same sport, not like sports. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the same difficulty we run into with lacrosse as well, with the different rules for lacrosse for boys and girls, even though we do have, you know, the sport is played the same. The rules are essentially the same. It's the helmet versus non-helmet bubble versus you can do contact. So it's 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 interesting when you look at the, the two sports. So yeah, I think we really just have a, a few few sports that really the rules are the same and that, you know, basketball, the soccer for the most part uh, that we can really truly compare. As far as applicability, I mean, I don't, again, I think as you kind of alluded to, I don't know that there's anything earth shattering here. Certainly from from my standpoint, I think it, it gives us some additional data for the sport of hockey, ice hockey in particular. We've got to make, make sure we distinguish that between field hockey as well. But I think in the big picture things, it just kind of basically confirms a lot of what we already knew and have seen in other sports and, and we can apply that to hockey. And we have one study here that shows similar rates of concussion between boys and girls. So again, you know, we can take that for what it's worth and 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 include that in in what we use for data. So it's not not for sure that it, girls are are worse off for hockey than boys, at least in Canada, where they have their different rules for body checking or not. They were followed pretty tightly. You know, they had, mm-hmm. a, they had an, a therapist or someone assigned to the team to follow. So I think I think that rate, you know, and as you pointed out too, they were able to actually measure the time of exposure. So they had it per player hours. That's yeah. a pretty significant rate, 17.6 concussions for every 100 and 1.3 for every 1,000 player hours. You know, that's getting a pinpoint estimate like that's sort of helpful in the context of generally understanding the risk of participation in the elite level of ice hockey. Yeah. Well, we'll move on to the second article. And the second article we are going to discuss was published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in January of 2022 from Dr. Carolyn Emery in Calgary, titled Body Checking in Non-Elite Adolescent Ice Hockey Leagues. 
it is never too late for policy change aiming to protect the health of adolescents. So Keith, go ahead and summarize this one for our listeners. Great. Happy to. To give a little context maybe for our some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the great sport of ice hockey, even though it is not as regional as it used to be, you know, body checking is defined as a method used to gain advantage on an opposing player using their body with an intentional forceful contact to stop an attack or separate the opposing player from the puck, sort of like a tackle in American rules football. And further context, you know, hockey has its own lingo. So that the categories of players that you can encounter are by age. So in the United States, ages seven and eight on December 31st of the player season is called might. That's called novice in Canada. And the next two years, they're in two-year age bands. The next are nine and 10-year-olds as of December 31st, squirt in the U.S., Adam in Canada. They gain the same nomenclature at age 11 and 12, peewee. And that is the first checking age, or used to be the first checking age. In 2011-2012, the U.S. stopped having body checking in peewee ice hockey, and Canada followed in 2013-2014. And as you think about a two-year age band as well, from that December 31st, you can have a very wide range in age and maturity from someone born December 31st of the 11-year group, you know, as far as December 25th, 30th of the of the 12 year age group, and that's always been an area of of really interesting investigation. The next age group is bantam, age 13 and 14, and midget, age 15 to 17, which is the subject uh, the group that studied in this study. The previous study was bantam and midget, to my understanding. Interestingly, this group, Dr. Emery and her colleagues, not only published the study we just discussed, but have, dis- have published extensively since probably since the early part of the 2000s, there was opportunistic studies in 2011 through 2014 where participants in that peewee band in U.S., but more in Canada, they were able to study it, went from being able to check to not being able to check. And they analyzed injury rates in that context, opportunistically, naturalistically. In 2002, the ages shifted down by a year in Canada to be consistent with the U.S., not not purposefully consistent, but there was consistency achieved. And that also provided some data when some kids may have moved from a checking league to a non-checking from peewee to... So there was a lot of evidence and reflecting on when, when Mark, you and I were on the council and we published the hockey body checking paper with our colleague, Allison Brooks, who took the lead with me on the writing of that. There was a lot of research that Dr. Emery's group had used. The evidence to base our recommendations on were largely related to these studies in the earlier part of the 2000s. And so now we're looking at this study, which has continued their methodology, continued their group. Bantams in Quebec and some, I believe in British Columbia, had some leagues stop checking subsequent to the peewee change as well. And they did some research on bantams. This is the midget. This is 15 to 17. This is, again, a naturalistic prospective cohort study. Three cities in Canada, Western Canada, Calgary, Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta, Vancouver, British Columbia, over the three playing seasons between 2015 and 2018. And it compared non-elite midget age players who were in checking and non-checking leagues in these cities. The previous paper mark was elite. And so elite divisions of play in this study were defined as the top three by division in their programs and leagues. The players were trying out for teams and then ranked in their various leagues, depending. Now, some could opt, I think, perhaps for a non-checking league. I don't know. This was not studied at all or mentioned in the paper, but I believe people could opt for a non-checking league if they want, but it's generally felt to be non-elite, the lower uh, the lower tiers. This sport is like youth soccer in the United States. You have multiple, multiple levels based on the caliber of play and the intensity of the experience. It was 
wasn't explicitly specified in this study exactly how they're ranked, but the top 30. So this is the sort of the lower 70% of leagues that we're looking at, a different animal in some ways than, than the previous paper, a newer paper. So uh, similar sort of feel, similar approach to the, the study sample. And they even referenced some of their methodologies from the study that you reviewed, Mark. But it was a preseason baseline questionnaire. They used the SCAT 3 or 5. Probably in the later seasons, they probably used the SCAT 5. They have a weekly exposure sheet which was completed by a safety coach or a manager that all of these teams had assigned to them. And then an injury report form was also completed for any medical attention, incomplete session, and or time loss from injury. And then a certified athletic therapist followed up on all of those injury report forms or WSs, the weekly exposure sheets, or if there were a physician visit to assess the, um, the injury. All players with suspected concussion were referred to a study sport medicine physician within 72 hours of follow-up, and the protocols clinically followed the Fourth International Consensus Statement on Concussion and Sports Standards. They defined more severe injuries as those that took away more than seven days from hockey, missed seven days or more from hockey, and they used the continual 10-time days loss as the more severe concussion. And they specifically said to be consistent with prior studies to be able to compare. So we have that same 10-day issue to deal with. This sample is pretty good size, 1,127 player seasons. 120 players actually were measured more than one time. They, were in, you know, they moved along in the league at the same time. They had 674 players on 52 teams in checking leagues and 453 on 44 teams in non-checking leagues. In the checking leagues, 179 players sustained 213 injuries, 69 of them being concussions. In the non-checking leagues, 39 players sustained 40 injuries, pretty much a one-to-one concordance with 18 of those being concussions. And, and they did some pretty sophisticated statistical analyses with all the data they had. They did a multi-level Poisson regression offsetting for game hours exposed and adjusted for clustering. So the team and subject level effects because uh, of, of the way you're comparing different teams. So for all injuries, the incident rate ratio was 0.35. So 65% less injuries in the non-checking league. And the more severe injury rate ratio or IRR was 0.08. So 92% reduction, although there were only five injuries in that more severe category. For concussion, the IRR was 0.49. So a 51% reduction. These are all statistically significant. The more severe concussion, there was only one, was 0.05. So a 95%. There was only one in the non-checking leagues. And they went further to adjust for a lot of covariates they had collected. So previous injury in the last year or previous lifetime concussion, the year of play for a second or third, and this is a little bit of a preview for the the next paper we're going to discuss, player weight, position of play, and then clustering again. And they use game hours uh, once again in the statistical offset for those of you who are really sophisticated uh, as listeners. And, you know, the numbers came out quite similar. The entire injury uh, reduction uh, rate ratio reduction rate was uh, 0.38 or 62% reduction. And then the concussion alone was, again, 51%. They did not have enough N with all of the variables in that model to look at the more severe categories of injury and or concussion. So they concluded at an with using an absolute rate reduction of 7.82 injuries per 1,000 player hours, they concluded that this could translate to 7,326 
injuries prevented each season if all of Canada adopted non-checking for these tiers, for this uh, tier of the 15 to 17-year-old, essentially high school age uh, hockey players. The range on that estimate was between 2,500 and 12,000, but really a pretty impressive public health impact uh, in, in terms of decreased injury rates. Some strengths that I noted, you know, this is methodologically rigorous. It's an experienced research team. They know their stuff as well-powered. They actually recruited prospectively using a sample size calculation. They, they aimed to get 46 teams per cohort with 13 players per team. They, they really did their power analysis well. A lot of covariates and, again, statistically sophisticated really significant effect size. I mean, we're going to find limitations, but we're not going to undo these statistically significant findings. And they're consistent with the prior work that Emery and the others and the, the other co-authors have, have done previously in the younger tiers. They've sort of been marching their way up from Pee to Bantam to Midget. Limitations? Interesting limitation is that the cohorts were really drawn from different cities. So when you actually look at who constituted the non-checking teams, Vancouver, British Columbia was in the study, but basically the entire 70% lower non-elite kids provided more than 80% of the non-checking kids within the entire study. They only had data from the first year, year one. That's the only year they drew data from Vancouver, and it was all the kids in Vancouver. Edmonton provided data for the lowest 40%, not the lowest 70, but so the middle 30 was lost only in the second season. And Calgary did provide data on teams in the lowest 40% in seasons two and three and was the only league left having participants in the third season. So there was a lot of good controlling, but you're having kids in different cities at different years among. Calgary and Edmonton provided data for the checking participants all three years. The other interesting limitation was only two-thirds, the study authors were concerned, only 66% of suspected concussions followed up with a study physician. I thought that was reasonable. It was consistent in both groups. Both groups had 66.7, even though they had the opportunity to meet. And I think the interesting part about the 10-day question is that I think we have to consider that the return to play, I think that huge decrease, you know, 92% or 95% of the more than 10-day concussions, I think... Those who knew that athletes were returning to a checking league may have been more conservative in their management and may have prolonged their return simply because of, not simply because, but partially out of concern for the type of exposure they would have. So that could be a differential bias. That could really magnify the the degree of uh, reduction of prolonged concussion in the non-checking league. So I think we have to take the the amount of severe or longer concussion with a grain of salt. And because concussion was actually close to 40% of all measured injury, that also is going to influence the overall, the effect estimate for the overall injury rates greater than seven days, because a big proportion of those were the concussions greater than 10 days. So, So I think that probably was a good idea that they also didn't include the longer injury and longer concussion in their final model, because it was probably a bias. I would think that the you and I know as you're practicing, if you're going to have someone go back to a non-contact activity, I mean, even some published guidelines, your return to play might be a little bit more shortened than those that are going to go back to a higher risk activity. But interesting, really interesting data came out in and was published in 2021, very rapidly accepted like May 1st and, and published online like May 21st. So it, it came, as opposed to the previous one, it came to fruition pretty quickly. 
You know, I'm curious when you, we were talking, you were talking and mentioning about the limitations with the different cities. Do you really think that that's going to have a big dramatic effect? Is it, I don't know that necessarily hockey is played that much differently in each of those cities. Uh, I mean, I couldn't imagine that, but do you think that just having those in that account for different tiers there is going to dramatically affect the results here? in a big picture. I mean, I, I know there's probably some limitations there because they didn't have them followed for multiple seasons, but you know, that a lot of research studies are like that. You get them for a season and you're lucky to get a, a big cohort for a season. And, you know, we have a concussion group that we're doing research with that, you know, we have people in sites all around the United States. And that's actually an advantage to have those multiple sites because then we see potentially could see some regional differences there and we're not, which is the good thing. But, you know, I'm just curious of your thoughts as far as how much of a limitation do you think that may be? I think it's a limitation to the point that you always need to acknowledge your limitations to, sure. to truly assess the value of a study. I don't think it overturns the study. I think, unfortunately, maybe one of the reasons that the next study got published is because I know that this group and others have constantly faced backlash when they've suggested that we should decrease the numbers of leagues that need checking. Fundamentally, fundamentally, as opposed to American Rules Football, ice hockey is a sport that does not need checking. The women play an exciting brand of hockey without checking. I play maybe not an exciting brand of adult <laughs> hockey without checking. You, It's a lifelong sport. It can yeah. be a lifelong yeah. sport because checking is not integral to playing the game. And, and some of us fear that having checking can turn some kids off to a game that could be a lifelong sport to them. So at the very highest elite leagues, if you theoretically are going to play juniors or in the NHL, I suppose it's it's part of the package. You know, the NHL is not going to get rid of checking. It's an entertainment. And so, but expanding the numbers of non-elite kids who can enjoy the sport has always but the, but the pushback has been among things like well if you take the checking out later on they're going to get more injured with checking and that's a preview of our next study a diversion i know i would not say they're going to overturn the fundamental magnitude it may moderate a little bit because you know it's one league in vancouver it's one city you don't know what the culture of that league would be versus the culture of the league in canada you know sure. stereotypically Calgary particularly is, is cowboys. It's rural. It's like some, some folks in northern New England, really hardcore, tough, <laughs> tough people. Vancouver might have this, you know, the the stereotype of being a, you know, an urban metropolitan city. That's unfair. But but you don't know what the what the coaching philosophy or culture is. You don't know what the refereeing standards are. And mm -hmm. it's generally, yes, the rules are the same in hockey Canada sure. probably set some baseline. But you go you do have to allow that some variation, especially since Vancouver represented the vast majority of the non-checking kids could have caused for that magnitude to be a bit more magnified because of effects related to Vancouver and not related to checking, but certainly not to undermine the, the findings. And I, obviously, I will freely admit I'm not the hockey guru as I did kind of in my introduction. I know you have much more passion for the sport in general and you play, but I'm just curious, how did body checking even get into the league. Do you have any background as far as that, as how body checking started and why that became such an integral part, especially at the NHL level? Even the fighting aspect of that too, because that the interesting part of that is, you know, my wife, 
she doesn't understand why that's there in hockey. She that's turns her off as a fan of the checking and the fighting part of hockey. She'd rather see them play. Like you talked about the women's ice hockey, beautiful sport. I love watching it. It's fast. It's exciting. And I love watching my Wisconsin Badgers kick butt all the time in women's ice hockey. But it's, 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 you can truly do that sport without having any of that in there and still have it in a very exciting game. So I don't know if you have any background into that as far as the knowledge of that. It may be something we look into for a future episode as far as just talking about body checking and origins and hockey. Yeah, I don't know. I so I don't know the historical origins of ice hockey as well as I should as a as a really passionate aficionado. The roots some some people trace the roots back to uh, curling in Ireland, which I I don't know if curling ever had any sort of a collision or checking component. Field hockey does not. My daughter played field hockey, and I think that also has maybe some lineage with with Irish curling. Uh, I think you know Canada, uh, Montreal, particularly Canada, is feels like it's the birthplace of ice hockey. Uh, it was similarly, in some ways, traces you know uh, McGill and Harvard University sort of claim almost to be the progenitors of American rules football with rugby. So there's probably some gamish of rugby, curling, and football that all sort of. I think checking was from the beginning. I don't think it was introduced as a tactic. Certainly, if you look at old footage of National Hockey League games, they weren't wearing helmets. The equipment was mm-hmm. far less protective. And I think you would imagine, therefore, that the checking at that point would have been less severe, although there's legendary stories of Gordie Howe and the and called the Gordie Howe hat trick where you have a, a goal assist and a fight in the same game. <laughs> and so, you know, th- th- it's always been a tough sort of rough and tumble macho game. I don't know that checking was ever sort of introduced as much. And that's why probably taking it out of the game feels so culturally challenging and, and sure. inappropriate. But the, but the women's game is is still a contact sport, like, mm-hmm. like soccer and basketball. Yeah. So you're not looking at just sort of ballet on ice, although there is some some wonderful skating in both the men's and women's game that, that in some ways is like ballet on ice. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll cover our final article of this episode. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising could have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, (laughs) you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. 
Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back with Dr. Keith Loud, and we are reviewing some recent research articles in youth hockey. Our final article is from Dr. Paul Eliason and was published in the June 20th issue of this year in 2022 in the Canadian Medical Association Journal titled Body Checking Experience and Rates of Injury Among Ice Hockey Players Age 15 to 17. And Keith and I will I'll kind of summarize the methods and, and then we can kind of talk about the results here. As you kind of alluded to, this is basically kind of piggybacking off of the previous research and just kind of going further into whether body checking experience has a role in injury rates as what has been postulated you you know and this is also the same thing for tackling in football right is you delay it and so that's going to increase your risk of injury so this is trying to tease that out a little bit as far as whether body checking and postponing that potentially creates more of a trouble with injuries so the study was a prospective cohort trying to examine that effective injury rates in general and concussion in elite and non-elite ice hockey athletes that were aged 15 to 17 by experience with body checking overall Actually, only 21 athletes of the 941 that were included here had one season or less experience of body checking. So the two groups they evaluated, they defined as those with two or less years of body checking experience. And then everybody else was grouped into three or more years of body checking experience. They were followed over the season for anywhere between seven to 30 weeks with a median of 20 weeks of exposure. In the group with less body checking experience, there was a higher history of injury in the previous 12 months than those with more body checking experience. Interesting. And then a lifetime history of previous concussion was more frequent in those that had more body checking experience. There was 148 player seasons of athletes with two or less body checking experience years. So it's a much smaller cohort here. And then there was 1,020 player seasons worth of athletes that had three or more years of body checking experience. And again, a player season, if you played multiple seasons, you got counted for two player seasons. So we do see some athletes that are included in the study over multiple seasons. Players were assessed very similarly with preseason questionnaires. They had a weekly exposure sheet and injury reports, followed by a trainer or a manager on site for these types of things to document. Only game-related exposures was evaluated since the body checking policies really here focus on games only, so they didn't include things related to practice. And then the years of body checking experience, and this I had a little bit, I was trying to follow this a little bit, how they tried to figure this out, because it seemed like they were using multiple angles to try and determine how many years of body checking someone had. So it was based on the year of the study, the local and national body checking policies, and then if applicable, data from the baseline questionnaire regarding years of participation. So I'm assuming they're just looking at when body checking typically starts, where these athletes were in that, and then using those as potential ages for years of exposure. Their outcomes were incidence rates of game-related injury and injury resulting in more than seven days of time loss from hockey and concussion. This was really primarily a study of males. There was only seven females in the entire cohort, so we really should just be talking about this in terms of males. And part what we alluded to before with really that most of the our females are in non-checking leagues. And so there's a couple, there's a small handful of female athletes that were participating in these checking leagues. Uh, just to kind of summarize some of the research findings here, just a couple little things I highlighted here on the study. When they looked at the outcomes for the experience of body checking age, so if we looked at those less than two years of body checking experience, and they used, again, the per thousand player hours, the crude rate of all injuries in those less than two years of experience was 4.82. Those with greater than three years was 11.94, so a much higher rate of injury overall. So that led to an incident rate ratio of 2.53, so a significant increase there of all injuries for those that had a higher body checking experience than those that had not. 
And then if we looked at an absolute rate increase, it was 7.12 per 1,000 player game hours for those that had the greater than three years of body checking experience. If we looked at injuries with greater than seven days of time loss, we had a crude rate of 3.16 per 1,000 hours for those with less than two years of body checking experience, and then 7.73 per 1,000 player game hours for those with greater than three years of body checking experience. So again, we see a similar incident rate ratio here as to all injuries of 2.56, and then the absolute rate increase was 4.57 for those that had greater than three years of body checking experience compared to those with lower And then just finally looking at concussions here, again, the crude rate for those with less than two years of body checking experience was 1.66 per 1,000 player hours, was 4.44 for those with greater than three years of body checking experience, which again, very similar incident race ratio of about 2.66. And then again, an absolute rate increase here per 1,000 player game hours of 2.78. So we do see in this study that we're seeing those that had a higher experience rate have a much higher injury rate overall for concussions in those injuries that were longer than seven days. Concussions accounted for the vast majority of the injuries in both groups, followed by upper body injuries, if we're going to define it the way the NHL does, using the category of anything above the waist, basically. And then we see the smattering of lower body injuries as well. Interestingly, they did look at player weight here, and it wasn't associated with injury or concussion. So when we kind of tease out a little bit when we're talking about those that may be of different sizes and what have you, because there have been some studies that suggest that greater weight is associated with a greater incidence of injury in other hockey studies that they didn't find that in this particular group. Anything else you want to kind of summarize from this particular study, Keith? No, I agree. And, and you know, this uh, even when you start reading deeply into the methods, they they say they didn't. They didn't do a, a sample size calculation because it was a secondary analysis of basically the study we just discussed. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they did have the same 46 teams or suggested 46 teams. And you know, I, I agreed with you. I, I, I'm aware of this sort of phenomenon and this research. And even I had to read several times through, okay, how did they define less than two? Why less than two? What's more than three? But fundamentally, you know, they're using the same Edmonton and Calgary teams that they, same data, it's the same data set. You know, Dr. Eliason was the first author on this paper and the second author on the previous Emory paper. Same data set. You're basically looking at kids who probably started checking as bantams, as 13-year-olds in general, mm-hmm. because Pee Wee has pretty much not been a checking league since 2013, 2014, and this started in 2015. So you're really trying to find those few kids who are either had been in a non-checking division in Bantam, which are not necessarily widespread. Because if anything, what's happened, I think, in Canada is that the older you get, it becomes clear whether you're going to be elite or non-elite. And so I think there's been an expansion of midget non-checking leagues to allow kids to keep playing the ones you know who aren't really ever going to go to elite, whereas at Bantam, I think it's still... So you're trying to find those kids who are just joining at 14 or maybe are coming out of a non-checking league, and that's your your sample uh, of non-checking kids. So it, it... But I get it now. You're really trying to compare, again, those with experience. And and fundamentally, it, you know, it, it basically says, no, that, that you know, you would, ex- you would assume that those who had less experience are going to get more injured when they first get exposed to chicken. You're going to get used to it, and you're going to, therefore, decrease your injury rate. And that's always been the argument for starting checking earlier is get it over with because you're going to, and that doesn't bear out in this one. I found it interesting just in general that this, which is a a little bit more esoteric, was in the Canadian Medical Association Journal, which is a broad 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, not a not a specialist journal like their journal of you know like their JAMA in Canada. Whereas the paper we just discussed, which I thought had a broader public health impact, was in the British Journal of Sports. Yeah. And I, I would have thought it would have been reversed setting Agreed. before they published. Agreed. Yeah. I, I I see the same thing there too, as far as why why this particular one as opposed to the other one, when that one clearly demonstrates the, the difference there and how the injury reduction is is I mean it, it's flat out there. Hey, this really makes a big difference, and 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 this one here, you're right, it's a little bit more esoteric and was in a more more probably widely distributed and more general readership from a physician and, and healthcare professional standpoint. Yeah, so interesting, but you know, this is the this is the world of academia and how, how mm-hmm. you publish. The the other thought I have, not to keep dominating the conversation, is just not you know, I like to read studies rigorously and only take the evidence, but in my own experience, more as a parent of a hockey player than as a as a player, I've seen because I actually didn't start until too late, age ten or eleven in the Boston area was well behind the curve. But I've seen those kids start yeah, we were in about that same age range when the, ch- the changes were happening. Actually, my kids were, my son was in, was in the Pee Bantam transition. Kids are not naturally inclined to check. Yeah. They, they, they they're not, they don't want to do it. They, they, they get the hang of it. Some don't. Some will leave the sport, sadly, and some will get the hang of it. So I totally, from a parent perspective, can believe these findings to say, as they get older, as they get used to it, and as those who want to do it get more aggressive, well, but what's interesting is you're measuring injuries to them, right? So yeah. they, with with more experience on their part, they end up more injured, yeah. probably because they're playing the game more aggressively. You're also, this is the elite tier now. This is the checking leagues. So it just shows that as they get older and, and they go through puberty, they can become more aggressive and they are bored, more detrimental to their own health and yeah. well-being, perhaps. I think that's consistent with my lived experience that I can believe this study. Yeah. So I'm curious then in the big picture of things, since you were one of the lead authors on the AAP's body checking statement, now with this additional research, do you think that would be enough to justify changing recommendations yet again, as far as what the AAP should put out? And again, I'm not going to hold you to that, (laughs) but just, you know, as being one of those lead authors and being so integrally involved with this, do you think this pushes the needle even further? I mean, to me, I would say yes, just because, I mean, this is some pretty compelling data, especially with the second study that you reviewed, that we really do see that body checking in general is is not great to keep our athletes on the ice. We really want them to stay on the ice and stay uninjured. Yeah, no, as sports medicine professionals who are trying to maximize the benefits and decrease the risk of sports participation, I, I, you know, we were, we had to be, the data wasn't fully there when we wrote the paper in 2014. Mm-hmm. We had to say that we would advocate for the increase, expansion of opportunities for those over the age of 13 to continue in check in, in non-checking leagues. I, I think we, I would hope USA Hockey and Hockey Canada would be at the point of saying, all right, we got to just bantams, forget about it. We don't need to check as bantams. You know, you're still in that range of developmental, you know, the, the difference between an early 13-year-old and a late 14-year-old physical maturity. And the weight the weight here didn't bear out. And by 15 to 17, most are post-pubertal or 10 or 4. 
13 to 14, I think there's a lot of concern about the range. Mm-hmm. So yes, I'd be in favor of advocating to say, you know, and, and the reality of high school hockey or youth hockey in the United States is such that those who are going to probably become elite now, maybe this is not true in Minnesota, but in general, those who are going to be elite aren't even playing high school hockey in the United States anymore. They're playing travel teams, they're yep. playing major junior, U.S. junior. They're yep. already playing in a different tier. So you could make the case. I, I could I could be comfortable with the AAP developing a statement that suggested, let's just make high school hockey not checking. Contact, yeah. not checking. Great sport, lifelong sport. Those who think they have dreams of college scholarships or pros, they're already on a different track. They're already going and playing, you know, and they're not going to college until they're 19 or 20 anymore. Because even if they finish high school, they didn't do a couple of years of junior hockey uh, and the like. So yeah, count me in. My son was one of those goalies. So the other thing that was in one of the papers was that generally speaking, goalies have a lower injury risk. Weird because they're getting that rubber thrown at them 30, 40 times a game. But but he was a goalie. So I never had to wrestle with the ethical dilemma about letting him play collision hockey versus not. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Keith Loud, for taking some time to review these articles with me for all of you. I truly appreciate his experience, his friendship, and his expertise. Given that Dr. Carolyn Emery was involved with all these articles, I think I have a new guest also to reach out to for future episodes on hockey and hockey injuries in our young athletes. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I truly appreciate all your five-star reviews and positive feedback. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.